0: President Biden and Donald Trump win Michigan's primaries. It's Wednesday, February 28th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, key takeaways from the Michigan primary results. Also this hour, an investigation shows thousands of Florida public service employees lost union representation because of a new law. Supporters of that law say that wasn't the intent.
1: The law doesn't decertify them. The workers may choose that through an elective process.
0: Plus in this leap year, we look at the origins of an old custom, women proposing to men on February 29th. What I
2: discovered is that it was actually intended to ridicule the idea that women would have this opportunity. Rainy
0: and windy today in the 50s. It's 7.01, now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and former President Donald Trump remain on course for an election rematch this year after both of them won big in Michigan's primary elections yesterday. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter, rather, Kleinfelter tells us the election also revealed some significant weak spots for the candidates.
4: Though Biden was a clear winner in his primary, a sizable portion of Democrats voted uncommitted in an attempt to send the president a message to change his support for Israel's war in Gaza. And Trump defeated rival Nikki Haley by a large margin, but she still gained hundreds of thousands of votes, a sign of some dissatisfaction among Republicans. In 2020, Biden beat Trump by only about 150,000 votes in Michigan.
3: Quinn Kleinfelter reporting. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra traveled to Birmingham, Alabama yesterday. He spoke with a group of women affected by a recent state Supreme Court ruling. From member Station WBHM, Andrew Gelderman reports the ruling declared frozen embryos are children.
5: Several fertility clinics in Alabama paused IVF procedures after the ruling, fearing legal consequences. The decision forced many patients to put their dreams of children on hold. Latoria Beasley went through years of IVF treatment and was devastated by the news.
6: It was a
7: gut punch. It was literally a gut punch.
5: Others talked about the financial toll of fertility treatments. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra thanked the women for sharing their stories.
8: The more that you and others who've experienced this or are going through it can speak to this, I, I think common sense will prevail.
5: When Basera asked if any of the panelists might seek procedures out of state, they said they'd rather stay in Alabama with the doctors they knew. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Gelderman in Birmingham.
3: The U.S. and several other countries have conducted flyover missions over Gaza. They're airdropping food and medical supplies from cargo planes. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv, nearly five months into the Israel-Hamas war, Gaza's population is facing hunger and a shortage of supplies.
5: An NPR producer in Gaza filmed a large jet in the sky and aid parcels gliding down with billowing parachutes. Israel's army says 160 aid parcels of food and medical supplies were airdropped along the coastline in southern Gaza over the last couple days. Planes from the U.S., France, Jordan, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates did the airdrops. Jordan's King Abdullah flew in one air mission. Fuel supplies were airdropped for a Jordanian field hospital in Gaza. There's been a dip in the amount of aid reaching Gaza in recent weeks. Israel says it's not blocking aid, and aid trucks have finally reached northern Gaza, where there's a severe shortage of food. Meanwhile, Israel says a missile from Lebanon hit a northern Israeli air base, and cross-border fire continues. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
3: You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is War in Boston. The town of Milton is preparing to defend itself against a lawsuit from the state attorney general. A.G. Andrea Campbell is asking the Supreme Judicial Court to force Milton to comply with the MBTA Communities Act. WBWR's Walter Wuthman reports.
5: The law requires cities and towns to zone for additional multifamily housing near MBTA stops. Milton originally passed a plan to comply with the law, but voters overturned it in a referendum this month. Other communities like Rentham are considering following Milton's example. Attorney General Campbell says she hopes her office's lawsuit sends a message.
9: We hope we don't have to continue
7: to file lawsuits against municipalities to bring them into compliance and that they look at what we're doing here and choose to follow the law and to develop their plans according to the regulations and the law.
5: Milton's town administrator says he's reviewing the AG's complaint and looks forward to defending the town. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: State officials are taking steps to make sure people still have access to care regardless of what happens to the Stewart health care system. The system says financial troubles have put operations at its nine Massachusetts hospitals at risk. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell says she's working with the governor and Health and Human Services to make sure people don't lose access to care.
7: Making sure the providers and the nurses that do that job also get paid, that's immediate work. On the accountability question, we are demanding documents. They need to be more transparent. They need to deliver more documents to us. We will take all that information and we will hold anyone and everyone accountable after we do a thorough review.
0: Governor Healy has suggested that steward transfer operations of its hospitals. Stewart has not commented publicly on that. Boston City leaders are hitting pause on a plan to move the O'Brien School of Math and Science to West Roxbury. Many parents expressed concerns about moving the exam school from its centrally located campus in Roxbury. WB Max Larkin says the pushback began quickly after the plans were announced last year.
5: So I think this is another setback uh, for the kind of ambitious, long-term facilities planning that Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and BPS Superintendent Mary Skipper are trying to do for this district full of 100-plus aging buildings. They had identified what they thought of as a practical site for the O'Brien School, which has long considered its present facilities inadequate.
0: The city has not announced where plans for the O'Brien will go from here. Workers at the Sinclair Music Venue in Cambridge are one of the latest local groups to take a stand against Israel's war in Gaza. Yesterday, employees refused to come into work at the venue. The boycott was prompted by an event hosted there last night by Harvard Habad. The organization's president said any proceeds from the event would go to, quote, the healing and rebuilding of Israel. Workers say the Sinclair hired third-party labor to keep the venue running. It's 7.07.
10: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: The Celtics racked up their ninth win in a row at home last night. They beat the Philadelphia 76ers 117-99. to Jalen Brown scored 31 points. The Celtics host the Dallas Mavericks on Friday. The Bruins get ready to host the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow night at 7. Showers today. Patchy fog is also possible this morning. Highs will be in the upper 50s, and a wind advisory goes into effect early this afternoon and lasts overnight. Also tonight, more patchy fog, rain, and maybe some snow showers are possible. We'll have lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and still windy, with a high only in the mid-30s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
11: It's Morning Edition from
7: NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. What message will Joe Biden take from Michigan's primary results? The president easily won the Democratic
11: primary last night while Donald Trump dominated the Republican side. Here is Biden's challenge. More than 100,000 people took the time to vote. For nobody, more than 13% of Democrats voted uncommitted to protest Biden's
7: handling of the conflict in Gaza. Here to tell us about the results in both the Democratic and Republican primaries is NPR political reporter Elena Moore in Detroit. Good morning, Elena. Good morning. So let's hear more about last night's results on the Democratic side. How did Mr. Biden do?
12: he received over six hundred thousand votes as of 5 a.m eastern this morning according to account by the associated press the uncommitted option was second to that a group called listen to michigan wanted democrats to send a message that way basically listen to michigan is advocating for biden to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire and stop sending us aid to israel and organizers say biden is at risk of losing key support in the general if he doesn't do that what does your
7: reporting suggest that this means for the president going forward?
12: Well, the group's goal was to get more than 10,000 votes, which was the margin Trump defeated Hillary Clinton by in 2016. And notably, Biden won Michigan in 2020 by more than 150,000 votes. But a few caveats here, Michelle. It's not uncommon to get several thousand uncommitted votes in 2012, which was the last time an incumbent Democratic president was on the ballot. Uncommitted got more than 20,000 votes. In 2008, over 200,000 voted uncommitted as part of a movement to support President Barack Obama's candidacy who was not on the state primary ballot. So last night, I asked Michigan State Representative Abraham Ayash why this moment is different.
8: I think anyone that has come out uncommitted this time around came out with the intention of sending the message that we do not want a party that is led with a lack of humanity for the Palestinian
7: people.
12: Michigan has a substantial Arab and Muslim population, especially in the southeast portion of the state, and organizers from these communities talk about the pain and anger folks are feeling. And what's notable from Tuesday's results is this is the first major test for how voter attitudes towards Biden's handling of Gaza could affect outcomes. And anecdotally, all week I've been speaking with young voters about the violence in Gaza, and it's really resonated with them. And that's a key constituency in Michigan and generally for the Democratic Party.
7: Mm -hmm. Agreed. I mean, we've been hearing from our colleagues, Leila Faddle and Don Gagne, you know, all week on the program, hearing very similar things. Okay, before we let you go, the Democratic primary was not the only one. There's still a contested Republican primary. The former President Donald Trump won there. But what about his challenger, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley?
12: The Haley campaign actually highlighted the division on the Democratic side after her loss last night, calling it a sign of Biden's weakness in November. But nevertheless, Trump has another win under his belt, making the window of viability even smaller for Haley. But, you know, she's continuing on. The campaign has stops planned in different states ahead of Super Tuesday, which is, you guessed it, Tuesday. And that will be another major test for Haley. Over a third of the total delegates are on the line in next week's contests. And the former South Carolina governor has yet to win a sizable number or any state.
7: That is NPR political reporter Elena Moore. Elena, thank you. Thank you.
11: No matter who wins the presidency this year, the makeup of Congress will determine much of what he can do. The Senate is especially powerful. Its majority can set the terms of legislation and also confirm or reject judges and cabinet members. If you worry about a president appointing officials who would wreck the rule of law, the Senate majority decides if he can. Democrats hold the Senate now and face long odds of keeping power. They're just defending more seats than Republicans, and in some cases, defending seats in states that voted for Donald Trump in the past. Jessica Taylor is following all of this. She is with the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Jessica, I love this that our friend Amy Walter now has has her name on the building, so to speak. It's right part of the title. Is that right?
13: Yes, it's a we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year.
11: Okay, that's great. Well, I'm glad to have you along as your former colleague here, of course, of us here at NPR News. How do Senate yes. Democrats view their chances?
13: I think that they are cautiously optimistic at this point because they have to be. Now, in 2022, they faced not this terrible of a map, but they had some very difficult states that they were defending. And because of weak Republican nominees, they were able to win in states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania Hmm. and really defy the odds and actually pick up a seat. So that's why they now have a 51-49 majority that is really crucial. But really, they pitched a perfect game in 2022. It's hard to do that twice in a row when you're facing such a completely difficult map where they are almost entirely on defense. Yeah,
11: I'm thinking about the way that a lot of Democrats for years have hated Joe Manchin of West Virginia, their fellow Democrat. Um, Well, he's retiring. They'll soon be rid of Joe Manchin. Uh, What happens to that very important West Virginia seat now?
13: That is a seat that we expect to go to Republicans. Once Manchin announces retirement, we announce, we move that seat to solid Republican. So that is a seat that we count in the Republican co- column. And even if they only lose West Virginia, but a Republican Trump wins the White House, Republicans would have the majority because it would be a 50-50 right. split, and the Republican vice president would break the tie. So, really, even if they only lose West Virginia, the game is game is over. But there's so many more seats in play in very difficult states.
11: Kirsten Sinema, another Democratic senator, former Democrat at this point, the Democrats mm-hmm. really were frustrated by, um, is trying to keep her seat in Arizona. But I don't understand what's going on there. Three-way race. We don't know
13: yet, but we should know pretty soon. At the beginning of April is the deadline, and she has to turn in a lot of signatures if she wants to run as an independent. She has not been, she's been, not been raising the type of money that you would need to do this. And we have not seen indication that she is gathering this these signatures, which take a long time. So we should have an answer in a month for sure. But I think it's possible this could just be a two way race, really, okay. which is still competitive and in our toss up column.
11: Com- competitive, but Democrats would be in a better place than if there were two like current or former Democrats splitting up their side of the vote I suppose
13: well it's interesting because cinema's path is actually to take more Republican votes Oh. sort of those McCain Republicans that's that's sort of the calculation that I have seen that they have released so because you have Carrie Lake that is more of a divisive candidate uh, they see that she could she could take some of those more moderate votes and would have to win a majority of independents so I've actually seen where she could take more Republicans well oh,
11: now it's interesting you mentioned Carrie Lake, who ran previously for governor and lost, mm-hmm. because you were talking about Republicans running unelectable candidates or problematic candidates. I guess they're trying for more effective candidates this year. And I note that in Maryland, where there's a Senate race, they've got Larry Hogan, the popular former Republican governor
13: yes and they've gotten good candidates in montana where they have now avoided a primary we will know the outcome in ohio in just a few weeks that's another very pivotal state they have a clear field in pennsylvania which is another top pickup opportunity um but lake sort of does stand out because she's exactly the type of candidate they hope to avoid to me this is a bit of a marriage of convenience because they when she got in they did not see a way that she would not win the republican primary because she's so popular with the base so i think they've sort of forged this alliance with her to try to keep her on the straight and narrow, focused on the future, not looking back toward her claims about fraudulent, um, uh, fraudulent uh, votes in the 2020 election. Um, but it's still dicey.
11: In, in a couple of seconds, is there any state that Republicans are defending a seat that they have to worry about seriously?
13: Texas and Florida are really the only two, but I think those still remain really long odds in a presidential year for them.
11: Jessica, thanks so much. It's a pleasure talking with you again. Thanks, Steve. That's Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political
7: Report with Amy Walter. We have team coverage this week of leap year. It's once every four years. Why not? February 29th is tomorrow. Now we're going to tell you how the day is associated with an Irish tradition. It is leap year, you know. In Ireland, a woman can propose to a man on the
9: 29th of February. Dad, I'm not going to Dublin.
7: That's from the trailer for the 2010 Amy Adams movie, Leap Year. A character travels to Ireland with plans to propose to her boyfriend on Leap Day.
11: This is a real Irish practice, which some accounts trace back 1,500 years to the moment when St. Bridget supposedly proposed to St. Patrick, which seems like a romantic story, although St. Patrick biographer Philip Freeman says it's wrong.
14: There's nothing in the earliest sources on St Patrick and St Bridget to suggest that Bridget ever proposed to Patrick. I think since Bridget was a nun and Patrick was a celibate priest, this is pretty unlikely.
7: Never mind the facts. People have held on to this legend. It's a nice story. It
2: looks like female empowerment, the premise of women being able to ask men to marry them.
7: Catherine Parkin of Monmouth University asked why this tradition really has persisted so long.
2: What I discovered is that it was actually intended to ridicule the idea that women would have this opportunity.
11: Parkin collects leap year postcards featuring women proposing to men going back to the early 1900s.
2: They're portrayed as taller than the men. They're portrayed as bigger, heavier set than small men. And so they use all of these visual imagery to suggest that the women are taking a man's role. And so there are all these ways in which that, plays to a public that sees that as absurd.
7: But people, as people want to do, still give the tradition their own meaning. NPR listener Kayleen Modica in Austin, Texas, told us what she did with her boyfriend Mo on the last leap day in 2020.
15: I got down on my knee and I had a flower and I proposed to him with the flower and I gave him this long speech of why we were meant to be together forever.
7: Mm another leap day approaches and they're still married another npr listener tom freitag
11: got in touch from hendersonville tennessee about his proposal to his then girlfriend amy on leap day in 2008.
1: i ended up getting like a little uh, trinket box of a frog to put the ring in and i took her out to her favorite restaurant and asked her if she would take the leap with me all right she did
11: they've been married for almost 15 years and thanks to the reality of leap year Tomorrow is just the fourth anniversary of their engagement.
16: To say
17: yes, to say there's nothing more than you back, it's not sad.
11: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that rapidly spreading wildfires are forcing evacuations in Texas and Oklahoma. Also, President Joe Biden has issued an executive order aimed at better protecting Americans' personal data from foreign adversaries like China and Russia. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Supreme Court today hears a challenge to a Trump-era ban on a gun accessory used by a man in Las Vegas in 2017 to commit the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. It's 720.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
3: BUR is such a critical part of my life that I just wanted to make sure that BUR is still here for the next generation and the next generation after that.
19: Your legacy is WBUR's future. Learn more at WBUR.org slash legacy.
20: The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, Joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. A good chance of showers today. It'll also be windy with some patchy fog this morning. Highs will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the upper 20s, and there's a chance of more rain and some snow showers. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy. It'll be much colder with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Joe Biden and Donald Trump have won their party's presidential primaries in Michigan, a state that may be pivotal in the general election come November. Analysis and what's next are on. 90.9 this morning. Thanks for listening.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from UCSF Health, the cancer team at UC San Francisco is working to uncover new and better ways to target and destroy cancer cells. Learn more at ucsfhealth.org slash targeting cancer. From Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from
7: NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
11: And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a story this morning of two icons. One is a famous photo from the Great Depression. It's called Migrant Mother, a woman whose anxiety shows on her face and illustrates the economic distress of 1936. The photo is part of an exhibition called Seeing People at Washington's National Gallery of Art, which features the photography of Dorothea Lange. So that's one icon. The exhibition is reviewed here by the other icon, NPR Susan Stanberg.
16: What do you see in this space?
22: I see a lot of worry.
16: Curator Philip Brookman.
22: Her face is, is the face of a woman who is worried about her children. It's
16: the face of despair. It's a face of
22: despair, but there's a tremendous amount of, kind of resilience and you know, strength in her face as well.
16: Florence Owens Thompson, 32 years old, beautiful once, in California from Oklahoma with her three children, desperate for work, a universal experience that woman is in darfur right now she's in yemen she's in palestine she's in israel we know that face 16 years before shooting that iconic picture lang was making portraits no selfies in the 1930s of the wealthy in her own studio in san francisco
22: and very quickly became the kind of go-to place for the high society
16: lang shows mrs gertrude fleischacker in soft focus head on hand and she's wearing a beautiful long strand of pearls researcher elizabeth fortune it's an unusual pose for the time dorothea lang and some of her photographer pals are experimenting with new ways to use their cameras less formal poses eyes away from the lens lang goes from studio portraits to the streets in the
22: depression it's a picture that she made after Seeing outside her studio window the kind of despair that was developing on the streets of San Francisco.
16: 1933, White Angel Breadline. A crowd of men, their backs to us, waiting for something. One man faces us, holding a tin cup. His hat brim covers his eyes.
15: So he's anonymous, and so she's not taking anything from him. He's keeping his dignity. He's keeping his anonymity, and yet he still speaks to the plight of, you know, a nation in crisis.
16: Social conscience put Lang on the streets. She becomes a documentary photographer, says it lets her see more. It was, I think, a way for her to understand the world. And makes us see it. This National Gallery show, up until the end of March, traces Dorothea Lang's path from studio portraits to documentarian to artist. The cover of the hefty catalogue is a tightly cropped 1938 photo of a weathered hand holding a weathered cowboy hat. A hat is more than a covering against sun and wind, Lang once said. It is a badge of service. The photographs of Dorothea Lang serve our understanding of a terrible time in American history, yet in its humanity, its artistry, it speaks to today. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News, Washington.
7: Heartstopper is the UK's fastest selling graphic novel ever. The young adult series follows the story of Nick Nelson and Charlie Spring, who meet and fall in love at an all boys school. In 2022, it was adapted into a Netflix series. Do you want
23: to go to Harry's party?
16: With me. Oh,
23: I don't know. It doesn't really sound like my sort of thing. Please come. I want you to be there,
7: okay? NPR's Julie Deppenbrock talked with Heartstopper's creator about her work and the demand for LGBTQ stories for
24: and about young people. British author Alice Oseman still cannot quite comprehend the popularity of Heartstopper, a comic series she launched just five years ago. It's really beyond my wildest dreams. Um, it's extremely rare
25: for authors to reach this level of popularity.
24: Oseman, now 29 years old, published her first graphic novel, Solitaire, when she was still a teenager, drawing from her own school life. Heartstopper is a spin-off of Solitaire, which features the characters of Nick and Charlie already in a relationship. The second season of Heartstopper's Netflix adaptation came out last August. In its first week, it had 6.1 million viewers, The series tackles stories of queer romance, friendship, mental illness, and coming out.
16: Obviously, I want you to come out when and how you want to. And if that takes a long time, that's completely okay.
3: But I guess part of me just wants everyone to know you're my boyfriend.
24: But heavier storylines are always balanced with a tone of optimism. Oseman says it's not just the tone that's resonating.
25: When I first released Heartstopper in the UK, young adult, Graphic novels really weren't much of a thing. There weren't very many available. But teens have really loved that it's got pictures. It's really easy to read. It's very quick to read.
24: And the success of the series makes a clear point about the demand for LGBTQ stories.
25: It shows that they are mainstream. There are so many people who want queer stories, especially young people, There is absolutely a market for those stories in mainstream media.
24: But with this popularity comes backlash. Heartstopper has been pulled from library shelves in several locations in the US.
25: It saddens me and I always feel quite helpless. You know, I always find myself thinking, what can I do? And I I don't really know what I can
24: do. In 2022, the American Library Association documented the highest number of attempted book bans since they began compiling data more than 20 years ago. Many of those titles were written by or about members of the LGBTQ community.
25: Queer young people really need to see themselves in fiction and in the media that they're consuming. For that to be taken away is
24: really scary and disheartening and upsetting especially since so many of the young people Osman hears from discovered Heartstopper in their school library.
25: It made me think back to being at school and hanging out in my school library, and there really weren't any queer books, that certainly that I saw or that I found.
24: To know that she's helping young queer people feel seen in that way, Osman says, is an honor. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News.
7: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBOR's Morning Edition. Music mogul Sean Diddy Combs has been accused of sexual misconduct again, this time by a former music producer. It's 7.29.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden is coming off a primary win in Michigan. And on the Republican side, former President Donald Trump secured his sixth win in a row. But NPR's Giles Snyder reports the likely nominees in November each faced challenges in the swing state of Michigan.
27: President Biden dominated the Michigan primary, but he faced a protest vote over his handling of the war in Gaza. It came in the form of ballots marked uncommitted, and it showed signs of strength in a state with a large Arab-American population. Donald Trump won by a large margin, but he's facing questions about whether he can expand his base in November's general election.
26: Trump, meantime, is contending with dozens of felony counts in four criminal indictments making their way through the courts, and Biden is dealing with an impeachment inquiry. That's leading his son, Hunter Biden, to a private House hearing today led by Republicans. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
20: A source familiar with the matter tells me that Hunter will tell lawmakers that his father was not involved in his business affairs. That echoes what James Biden, the president's brother, uh, told Congress last week in his own deposition. I'm told Hunter also is expected to acknowledge that he made mistakes, uh, that he's had his own struggles with addiction, stuff that has been well documented. Um, he's also expected to push back against the whole impeachment effort to, t- to tell lawmakers that, in his view, it's based on lies.
26: That's NPR's Ryan Lucas reporting, and you're listening to NPR News. This is
0: War in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Brockton's police chief says the school district needs to review its safety measures and update its security plan. That follows calls by the school committee to bring the National Guard in to help stop violence and drug use at Brockton High School. Chief Brenda Perez says the school's current security plan is more than 10 years old. She says the district should also consider hiring a school security director to work alongside emergency officials. Last week, state education officials promised to fund a safety audit at the school to help address the issues. Russell Johnston is the new interim commissioner of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. The State Board of Education appointed him to the role yesterday. As Jill Kaufman reports, Johnston has been a deputy education commissioner for a decade. Early in his career, Johnston had been a teacher in West Springfield and then district superintendent. Johnston takes over from Jeff Riley, who recently announced
28: he's stepping down in March. Johnston thanked Riley for suggesting him as interim commissioner, and he said he looks forward to the work ahead, keeping students at the center of education.
10: We're gonna keep that a theme moving forward, undoubtedly our deep, deep commitment to the students.
0: Among the immediate challenges Johnston inherits is the Holyoke Public Schools petition
28: to end receivership. The district has been under state control since 2015,
0: Riley told the school committee a few weeks ago more discussions are needed before a decision is made. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. A pandemic-era rule allowing restaurants in the state to sell alcohol to-go could become permanent. That's if lawmakers pass a bill being put forth by Governor Healy. Advocates say the policy helps drive revenue to local restaurants. Opponents of the plan include liquor store owners. They argue the practice encourages underage drinking. If the bill doesn't pass, restaurants would have to stop selling cocktails to-go by the end of next month.
29: It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, kf.org. The Celtics are on
0: a major winning streak. They beat Philadelphia last night 117-99. That makes nine wins in a row. The Seas hope to make it 10 when they host the Dallas Mavericks on Friday. The Bruins get ready to host the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow night at 7. This morning is starting off wet and unseasonably warm, but the mild weather won't last long. As WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce explains, a storm system is moving into the region.
30: A taste of spring today with mild air in the 50s, though it does come with a trade off. Areas of rain will continue through the day. The wind will be the big story too, gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour region wide. Some gust to 55 miles per hour on Cape Cod, isolated to scattered outages and damage will occur. The rain may end as a bit of wet snow too, as sharply colder air returns tonight after midnight, so some slick spots. May also result on surfaces that are untreated or have some lingering moisture. The sun's back tomorrow, but it will be blustery and cold. Gusts to 35 miles per hour create wind chill values in
0: the teens and 20s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Supreme Court hears another gun case today, and this time it is not about the Second Amendment right to bear arms. It is about a federal regulation that bans devices that speed the firing mechanisms on semi-automatic guns. And here's where I want to let you know that this report contains the sound of gunfire. Here is NPR legal affairs correspondent
9: Nina Totenberg. The gun regulation in today's case wasn't created by the Biden administration. It was created by President Trump. After a single gunman in Las Vegas, using multiple guns modified by so-called bump stock devices, killed 60 people and wounded 400 more, all in the space of 11 minutes. Marissa Morano and her sister Gina were there.
15: And I will never forget the sound of the machine gun firing into the crowd that night as Gina and I ran for our lives.
9: Actually, it wasn't an illegal machine gun. The shooter was armed with multiple semi-automatic weapons modified with bump stocks to generate rapid fire. And the carnage was so horrific that President Trump almost immediately ordered the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to ban the sale and possession of these devices that the ATF now says convert otherwise legal semi-automatic guns into illegal machine guns. Machine guns have been banned in the U.S. since 1934, but those challenging the rule today point out that the ATF hasn't always equated bump stocks with machine guns. They argue that the agency has wrongly reinterpreted the statute banning machine guns to include bump stocks, and that it doesn't have the authority to do that under existing law. At the heart of the dispute is a highly technical question about how bump stocks work in practice. In its brief for the ATF, the government notes that under the National Firearms Act, Congress has banned machine guns because they eliminate the manual movements that a shooter would otherwise have to make in order to fire continuously. And while a machine gun can fire hundreds of rounds per minute with just one pull of the trigger, semi-automatic weapons can't do that at least not without modifications like the bump stock. Mark Chenoweth is president and CEO of the new Civil Liberties Alliance, the conservative group that's challenging the bump stock regulation.
1: Whether or not there is a bump stock attached to that semi-automatic weapon, a
22: bump stock does not change the way that the trigger operates. So the trigger still has to be pulled for each time. The trigger moves, the trigger resets between each shot.
9: Not so, says the government. A standard semi-automatic rifle fires only one shot each time the shooter pulls the trigger, but a bump stock converts the gun into a weapon that would allow a shooter with a single pull of the trigger to fire at rates of up to 800 bullets per minute. According to the government, the bump stock at issue in this case, for instance, maintains a continuous firing cycle as long as the shooter keeps his trigger finger stationary on the finger rest. Each side focuses on its strengths. The government stresses the lethality of semi-automatic weapons when they're modified by bump stocks. And it notes that when Congress amended the National Firearms Act, it added that machine gun parts themselves count as machine guns. The challengers focus on earlier regulations that did not ban bump stocks, and they see the bump stock ban as another example of an administrative agency enacting a new regulation that criminalizes conduct without explicit congressional authorization. It's an argument that plays to the conservative Supreme Court's increasing inclination to roll back agency powers. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. More than 42,000 public sector workers in Florida
11: have lost their union representation. That's because of a new law that Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed. This law makes it harder for unions that represent state and local employees to stay in business. It bans the union from having union dues deducted from paychecks. And then if some workers fail to pay, the union is decertified. Reporter Danny Rivero first exposed this on our member station, WLRN in Miami. Danny, good morning. Hey, Steve. Who are these 42,000 people? That's a large percentage of Florida state workers, as I understand.
23: It is. This is people like janitors, groundskeepers, park employees in the state, accountants, just office clerks. They have lost their unions. It's a lot of people. This law does exempt unions for police, firefighters, and correctional officers from these new requirements. But it does touch many, many public sector workers in Florida that simply haven't been able to hit the new dues paying member requirements under the law, which is that six in 10 workers need to pay their dues or else the union dies.
11: Hmm. How does this approach by Governor DeSantis's administration and the legislature match up with the laws that existed in Florida before?
23: Right, so Florida's a little odd with labor law. It's one of only six states in the union to have collective bargaining explicitly written into the state constitution. Hmm. But it's also at the same time a right to work state, which means no one can be forced to pay union dues. So the fine line that state Republicans are trying to walk here is to impose new regulations and rules around public sector unions while maintaining that they're not restricting the right to unionize. So I talked with Republican Representative Dean Black, who sponsored the bill in the Florida House, and this is how he described it to me.
1: The law doesn't decertify them. The workers may choose that through an elective process. And those are the rights that are guaranteed to them under the Florida Constitution. Okay, so are
11: some unions then being decertified?
23: They are. Some unions are out of business and some are just throwing in the towel. I talked to Lenny Mathis Jr., for example, he's a business manager of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers that's represented over 400 workers in the city of Ocala for more than a decade. And he told me, essentially, that union is done. It's finished.
22: I'm very sad. I think that there's no great buy-in to reorganize, and I'm, I'm just afraid there's nothing we can do.
23: So unions have filed challenges to the law in the courts, and we'll have to see how they play out. But in the meantime, we're going to see a lot more people lose labor unions in Florida. From port workers in Fort Lauderdale to lifeguards at public beaches, they stand to lose their unions if they don't hit these new requirements. Well, is this going to kill all public sector unions in Florida? No. I mean, some unions have really stepped up to the shock to the system of this new law, as one person put it to me, like the teachers union in Manatee County near the Tampa Bay area. Pat Barber is the president of the Manatee Education Association, and she told me they've gained a lot of people paying dues ever since this law passed. But at the same time, she would not say thank you to state Republicans for passing it.
16: I do not feel that having a guillotine over the union's head is an incentive to be stronger and more organized.
23: So that union has had a contract for 50 years, and this was the first time it was even threatened with the hint of being decertified by the state.
11: Daniel Rivera with WLRN in Miami. Thanks for the reporting.
23: Thanks for having me, Steve.
11: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on Wars Morning Edition, 14 states are considering following in Alabama's footsteps with bills that declare that frozen embryos have the legal status of children. Rainy and windy today with patchy fog possible this morning. Temperatures will rise to the upper 50s. Tonight, upper 20s with a chance of more rain and a few snow showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy. It'll be much colder with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 55 degrees in Boston.
29: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, Powering Possibilities. And Music Worcester, presenting Orchestre Métropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Tickets at musicworcester.org. The Federal
0: Reserve Bank of Boston has a new first vice president. Karen Pinnell will step into that role in April. She'll plan to take over for former first president Kenneth Montgomery when he retires. Pinnell comes to Boston with more than 30 years of Federal Reserve experience in Kansas City. The new Cape Cod tourism slogan is... Truly yours. It's part of a new logo and tourism marketing push launching today. Paul Nidzwicki is head of the Cape Chamber of Commerce. He says an influx of new residents to New England who may not think of the Cape as a destination prompted the new campaign.
10: I do think that we've seen pretty significant population shift, COVID 19 population shift during the pandemic. And so I think we have to sort of rebrand and and refresh and make sure that people uh, know who we
0: are. Ned Zwicky says the new logo resembles a fingerprint with 15 lines representing the 15 communities on the Cape. It's
21: 7.45. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
7: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Sean Diddy
11: Combs is accused again of sexual misconduct. One of his former music producers has filed a lawsuit, which adds to other lawsuits some of the details that npr music correspondent sydney madden is about to discuss in the next four minutes or so are graphic so be warned we'll still be here in four minutes if you need to go away sydney good morning good morning um i I, people know the name people know the nicknames people know he's got hit records but i feel like that doesn't capture the full picture here who is the man at the center of this
31: sean zitty combs is an enormous power figure in the music industry dating back decades as a music producer an artist himself he was responsible for the careers of notorious big mary j blige and many others he's a certified hit maker in the scene
11: yeah and so so you got power not only to raise yourself but to raise other people so what is the lawsuit against him
31: this lawsuit details events that jones the producer is alleging took place from 2022 to 2023 while he was working on diddy's latest album the love album Now, during that time, Jones says he was witness to many illegal activities, including a shooting at a recording studio. He says he was groped by Combs and sexually propositioned by people on behalf of Combs, that he was drugged and forced to have sex with sex workers. And on top of all this, Jones is claiming he was never paid properly for his work on the album. So he is suing for $30 million. Diddy's lawyer in response has denied all these claims made by Jones and he says her and she says her team has, quote, overwhelming, indisputable proof that his claims are complete lies. And I should say, to date, Diddy has uh, denied all allegations.
11: OK, so let's get some of the background here of this accuser, Rodney Lilrod Jones, Jr., long longstanding associate of Sean Diddy Combs or not?
31: No, not exactly. Lil Rod only worked for Combs for about a year. According to this suit, he says he was hired to produce Combs' latest album, and also to video the production process for behind the scenes. So he lived in he lived on Diddy's properties, which is how he was in so such close proximity to the mogul for that year.
11: Ah, uh, interesting insight into how he works. That somebody who's not a very long time employee is actually living uh, on on Diddy's properties. Um, How does this lawsuit fit into the other lawsuit that Combs has faced?
31: So this is the fifth sexual assault suit filed against Combs since late last year and There are some similarities between Jones' allegations and another one filed, the one that really started these landslide of cases, and that's Cassie Venturas. Cassie is a well-known R&B singer and Diddy's former longtime girlfriend. She accused him of over a decade of of abuse, and similar to Jones, they were both people very close in Diddy's circle who worked under him. Some of the things that Jones is accusing Combs of ring very similar to Cassie when we talk about illicit drug use and sex trafficking. But the aspects that are different um, are that this is recent history and this is the first man to accuse today.
11: And how do these accusations fit into the larger debate about sexual misconduct in hip hop?
31: Yeah, it's worth noting that not it's not only Diddy named in the suit, but it's also members of his executive staff and CEOs at Motown Records and Universal. So that this shows that if it's true, it's an industry upheld pattern of abuse that is looking to be addressed in this lawsuit.
11: Sydney Madden, NPR music correspondent, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, nurses in Michigan are fighting to pass a bill that would mandate minimum staffing ratios in hospitals. The hospital industry is pushing back with a multi-million dollar campaign. It's 7.50.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact, at Zevin.com.
32: Living in the aftermath of climate-driven disasters is incredibly difficult for most Americans, but dealing with a disaster on top of the financial strain of being in college is even harder.
33: I couldn't sleep very well.
24: I was not doing very well in classes. And then every time it rained, I just had a freak out.
32: are the unique challenges for college students in the face of climate change on All Things Considered from NPR News.
28: Listen today starting at four on 90.9
0: WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. President Biden and Donald Trump easily won their respective primary races last night in Michigan. A new executive order from the White House aims to prevent foreign powers like China and Russia from buying Americans' personal data. And a series of fast-spreading wildfires in Texas temporarily shut down a nuclear weapons facility in the state. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're
28: funded by you our listeners and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures
0: for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org/learning. Rain, gusty winds and upper 50s today. Temperatures plummet to the upper 20s. Tonight, it'll be windy and we may see more rain and a few snow showers. Tomorrow, still windy, but mostly sunny and only in the mid-30s. It's 55 degrees in Boston.
11: I had a check, but I'm pretty sure it's Wednesday. And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: And I'm Michelle Martin. Both President
7: Biden and the former President Donald Trump visit Texas to head to the southern border with Mexico tomorrow. Biden goes to Brownsville. Trump heads for Eagle Pass and Shelby Park. Now, that's ground zero in the fight between Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration. In a challenge to federal authority, Abbott used an emergency order to take control of the city park and ban the U.S. Border Patrol from operating there and... And, as Texas Public Radio's David Martin-Davies
6: explains, the
7: park's name is now part of the conflict. The gate to Eagle
6: Pass's Shelby Park is now secure by members of the Texas National Guard in an armored Humvee. Also camped out there is 68-year-old Dan Chandler, who is sitting on the folded-down seat of his walker. What I'm actually doing here is evangelizing. Chandler sports a long gray beard and a red Trump cap Attached to his walker are posters railing against transgender people, abortion, and one denying climate change. He also holds a Confederate battle flag, a flag he points out with a direct connection to Shelby Park. General Joe Shelby, at the end, was here in Texas. He actually wouldn't surrender. Major General Joseph Orville Shelby was a decorated Confederate cavalry officer and a fierce defender of slavery. But when the South lost its war to keep slavery, Shelby and his troops refused to surrender to Union forces. Instead, he and about a thousand of his followers fled into Mexico, and Chandler says, legend has it, Shelby even refused to give up the flag. Shelby came here with his Confederates. They crossed the Rio Grande. They even took the Confederate battle flag, wrapped it around a rock, and sunk it in the Rio Grande
4: on the bloody battlefields of the war between the states.
6: The story earned Shelby the moniker the Undefeated, which was also the name of the 1969 movie very loosely based on his story, starring John Wayne and Rock Hudson.
4: Why did you come clear out here to continue a war that ended months ago in Virginia? Because I'm a stubborn man. Does that satisfy you?
6: The story of General Shelby was regularly celebrated in Eagle Pass. There were reenactments. But now local activists want to change the name of Shelby Park. It should not be named after Coward and Traitor. Juanita Martinez, the Democratic Party chair here, says Governor Abbott has basically stolen the city park for his anti-migrant Operation Lone Star.
28: We may not get into the park, but maybe, maybe we can change the name.
16: We should name the park after a union general.
6: That's Eagle Pass resident Jesse Fuentes, he says changing the park's name could send a powerful message.
16: My favorite general that comes to mind from the Union side, of course, is Ulysses Grant. So I would say name the park, I'm a Grant Park. I'm a Grant Park would mean immigrant park.
6: Wentz admits that name could be too much to ask, but he and others are workshopping other names like Peace Park or People's Park. Back at Shelby Park's Gate, Dan Chandler, a Trump supporter, says leave the name alone. It's history, he says, and it's repeating itself. It's 1861 right now. If you're on that side of Governor Abbott, like 25 states in Georgia and Florida and Alaska and the Russians, we're all Confederates. He and others believe it's no coincidence Abbott is challenging the power of the federal government at the same place some call the grave of the Confederacy. For NPR News, I'm David Martin-Davies in Eagle Pass, Texas. Apparently, you say a lot
11: with what you choose to eat, especially in public. On the campaign trail, where the president is eating and drinking says something about him and the voters he's courting. Here's NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivram.
18: Hey man, how are you?
17: Hey. When President Biden was in Los Angeles last week for an event on student loan debt, he made a quick detour. Well, say hi to the
30: girl.
17: <laughs> At a Mexican cafe, he surprised diners and took selfies before he ordered a breakfast burrito to go. There's been mounting criticism lately about things from the president's age to his policies. As Biden has been trying to get out of Washington and into swing states, these kinds of stops have become part of Biden's routine. In New York City this week, he ordered mint chip ice cream with late night host Seth Meyers. Earlier this month, he tried boba tea in Las Vegas' Chinatown. And outside Raleigh, he stopped for burgers and a milkshake at the Southern fast food chain cookout. But when you're the president, a meal isn't ever just a meal. Biden's choices in where to stop and what to order are very deliberate.
22: Food is more than simply nutrition. It is a series of symbols.
17: That's Alex Perdom. He wrote a book called Dinner with the President. That's all about how politics intersects with food.
20: Food is relatable because we all have to eat. If you see a candidate eating the kind of food you like, it gives you a level of comfort.
17: Take, for example, Biden trying boba tea. It's a Taiwanese drink with tapioca pearls inside, popular with Asian-Americans and younger people. And it also sends a message to voters who think he's too old for the job, says Hunter Lewis, the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine.
22: Age is the question
1: right now, and so I think going to a cookout, going to a boba tea shop, those are smart moves. I mean, he is projecting that he connects with a younger audience and is in the know.
17: These stops on the trail are a stark contrast to former President Donald Trump, the likely Republican candidate in this election. He prefers big rallies, not these small settings. They're also a contrast to Biden's official events and get him out from behind the podium and engaging in retail politics. Jim Messina, who ran President Obama's 2012 campaign, says it's a more natural place for Biden to be.
20: Joe Biden feeds off the crowd. He's a little like Bill Clinton. He's better in that setting. He likes it.
17: It is a smaller crowd when Biden makes these stops, but his team makes sure to capture the moments to share online through social media. One of those videos features Juan Vargas. He runs Nowhere Coffee with his wife outside Allentown, Pennsylvania. When Biden came to visit last month, he ordered a smoothie and then sat down with the Vargas's for 40 minutes and talked about everything from oil prices to the cost of drugs. It was a planned conversation, but Vargas said it meant a lot.
8: I didn't realize it's really real to him when he's saying this stuff on
5: the TV. You know, he does actually, he looks at you and you're like, you can feel it.
17: The campaign is hoping Biden's food stops on the trail help him break through and connect with people, even if they're not interested in politics. It's a strategy that shows they're reaching to bring in more voters in an election that is likely to be decided by a small margin. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News.
11: Now I'm hungry.
7: Me too. I want some ice cream. Yeah, come on. I want some. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin.
0: One last day of warm weather today before we, re- we return to winter weather tomorrow. Today, rain, high winds and upper 50s. Tonight, upper 20s and a chance of more rain, possibly mixed with a little snow. Tomorrow, mid-30s and windy, but mostly sunny. It's 55 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
17: I'm education reporter Carrie Young.
0: President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump have won the Michigan primaries, further solidifying an all-but-certain rematch between the two men. It's Wednesday, February 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up, Hunter Biden is expected to testify on Capitol Hill today as part of the House impeachment probe against his father, also this hour.
17: I am fearful that other anti-abortion judges and lawyers will be emboldened
0: by this ruling. After the ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that frozen embryos are children, abortion rights advocates are worried that other states will follow suit. Plus, the cost of home and car insurance is going up fast, in part because of damage from natural disasters.
11: The sort of breadth of where these storms are occurring is something that I think the industry is quite concerned about.
0: Rainy and windy today in the 50s. It's 8.01, now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korova Coleman. President Biden and former President Donald Trump won their respective primaries yesterday in Michigan. Rick Pluta of Michigan Public Radio has more on Biden's
1: victory. The Michigan primary fell one week before the Super Tuesday round of primaries and caucuses. In Michigan, groups urged Democrats to vote for uncommitted on the ballot instead of Biden. That was to protest his handling of Israel's invasion of Gaza. Michigan has a large block of Middle Eastern voters, and many are upset with the president. Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes says she understands that people are anguished by what's happening in Gaza.
7: And I, I think that as we
16: move forward, we will listen more, we will hear more from our friends and neighbors, and we'll obviously hear more and see more from Joe Biden.
1: Barnes says Democrats will work hard to win the battleground state in November. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
3: Donald Trump easily carried the majority of votes in the Michigan Republican primary. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley came in second. Haley has vowed to stay in the race through early next week. The primaries in Super Tuesday states will award over a third of the total presidential delegates. The National Weather Service is warning that conditions are ripe for wildfires in the Southern Plains. The focus right now is on out-of-control blazes in the Texas panhandle. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us a nuclear weapons facility was temporarily forced to shut down.
27: The shutdown at the Pantex plant just northeast of Amarillo came after Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 Texas counties. Pantex is the country's main assembly and disassembly site for atomic bombs. Officials there say flames are not threatening the plant. The wildfires in the Texas panhandle have forced evacuations in multiple towns and cities.
3: NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. New research has mapped support across all 50 states for Christian nationalism. As NPR's Lisa Hagen reports, it's a set of religious beliefs that used to belong to the fringes of American Christianity. In five states, North Dakota,
2: Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia and Louisiana, half or close to half the adult residents believe Christians should dominate all areas of American society. That's according to a new survey about the influence of Christian nationalism conducted by the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute. President and founder Robert P. Jones says in most parts of the country, these ideas are a minority worldview.
9: But they're about a third of the Republican Party. So they have this outsized megaphone.
2: Christian nationalism is strongly linked to support for Donald Trump. The movement's ties to power also include U.S. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson and Tom Parker, the Alabama chief justice who recently ruled frozen embryos have the same legal protections as people. Lisa Hagan,
3: NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Boston officials are abandoning a plan to move the O'Brien School of Math and Science from Roxbury. The plan to move the O'Brien to West Roxbury was announced amid fanfare last summer by Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. But as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, it won little community support.
5: The O'Brien school community wanted a bigger, better school building, but they didn't want their diverse, centrally located high school relocated to a largely white precinct on the city's Dedham border. In a letter sent to the O'Brien community Tuesday night, Mayor Michelle Wu and top district officials said that, in response to a lack of consensus around the plan, the O'Brien will stay put indefinitely in a building that Wu herself has said is inadequate. Meanwhile, district officials wrote, renovations to the Madison Park Technical Vocational School, which neighbors the O'Brien, will continue since that plan did win community support. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
0: A new report suggests that Black Bostonians are still being harmed by systemic racism in several distinct areas. The report is from Embrace Boston. It documents inequities in transportation, housing, education, and the criminal legal system. Embrace Boston's Elizabeth DeBlanc says that starting to make up for these disparities should go beyond cash payments.
2: Monetary compensation is one step in one way, and then we have to ask ourselves what happens next and what do we do with what's left with our systems, our processes, and our policies that still continue to harm human beings every day.
0: She hopes the City of Boston's Reparations Task Force uses the report's findings in its own work. A portrait of 18th century First Lady Abigail Adams will be unveiled in the Senate lobby on Friday. Adams was born in Weymouth. She was married to the second president, John Adams, and lived in what is now Quincy. The Adams National Historic Park's Hillary Miller says Abigail Adams urged her husband to, quote, remember the ladies when writing the Declaration of Independence.
12: In those days, women did not receive education on the same level as men. But Abigail believed that it was incredibly important for women to be educated and to be able to contribute to the independence, to the freedom, to these ideals uh, of the American Revolution.
0: She'll be only the second woman to have a permanent portrait in the state Senate. It's 8.06.
10: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org.
0: The Celtics have come out of the All-Star break on fire. The NBA's leading team racked up their ninth win in a row last night. They beat the 76ers 117-99 to in Boston. The Bruins host the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow night at 7. Showers today. Patchy fog is also possible this morning. Highs will be in the upper 50s and a wind advisory goes into effect early this afternoon and lasts overnight. Also tonight, more patchy fog, rain, and maybe some snow showers are possible. We'll have lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow mostly sunny and still windy with a high only in the mid-30s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Alabama legislature could vote soon on whether to protect in vitro fertilization treatments.
11: IVF treatments there are largely on hold after the state Supreme Court said fertilized eggs have the same rights as children. It's not just
7: Alabama where lawmakers are debating whether a fetus is a person. NPR's Ryland Barton is with us now with the latest and also some broader context about this. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. So let's start with the new development in Alabama. We've been waiting on bills to be introduced to address last week's state Supreme Court ruling. And I take it we now have them?
22: Yeah, we do. So just a quick reminder how we got here. This all stems from a lawsuit by three Alabama couples whose frozen embryos were accidentally destroyed by a fertility clinic. Justices ruled that an 1872 law allowing parents to sue over the death of a child applies to, quote, unborn children. This immediately raised concerns about in vitro fertilization in the state. There was a lot of pressure to come up with a quick legislative fix for this. And yesterday afternoon, state Republican lawmakers proposed two bills that would exempt IVF from the effect of the ruling. However, one key measure no longer includes a definition of viability for an embryo. That's, um, that bill's author told Troy Public Radio he took that out of his draft in order to get the bill passed. That means even if this bill becomes law, frozen embryos would remain children as defined by the state Supreme Court.
7: You know, this, this ruling has gotten attention far beyond Alabama. Why is that?
22: Yeah, so because the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the constitutional right to abortion, uh, ever since that ruling two years ago, states have been in charge of regulating abortion, and advocates have been on the lookout for anything that further erodes reproductive rights. And of course, this is also a big election year, and Republicans are worried about this issue. So shortly after the ruling, GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump said he supports IVF, And in a memo obtained by NPR, the fundraising arm for the Senate, Republicans warned their candidates that the ruling could be, quote, fodder for Democrats hoping to manipulate the abortion issue for electoral gain.
7: Is there a sense that what
22: happened in Alabama could affect other states? Well, not directly, but it does raise these questions about fetal personhood. And since Roe v. Wade was overturned, Republican policymakers in some states are trying to restrict reproductive rights through this fetal personhood mechanism. I spoke with Candace Gibson. She's the state policy director at the Guttmacher Institute, which supports abortion rights and tracks abortion legislation. She says the Alabama decision could reverberate in other states.
15: I am fearful that other anti-abortion judges and lawyers will be emboldened by this ruling and trying to really replicate those efforts. I would be surprised if they didn't.
22: In fact, 14 states are already considering fetal personhood bills now, though they try to do it in different ways.
7: So so what? what different ways?
22: Um, So Republican lawmakers in Colorado and Iowa proposed bills this year that would define personhood as beginning at fertilization when it comes to homicide and wrongful death laws. And that includes no exceptions for IVF. At least six states have bills that would allow women to seek child support for fetuses. Georgia already has a law like that on the books. And although these proposals don't explicitly have anything to do with IVF, Reproductive rights advocates say that even granting limited protections to embryos and fetuses could have broader implications like we saw in Alabama.
7: That is NPR's Rylan Barton. Rylan, thank you.
22: Thank you.
11: Palestinians are hoping to speak with one voice eventually in the conflict with Israel. Right now, Palestinians are divided. Hamas governs the remnants of Gaza as an Israeli offensive continues there. A separate territory, the West Bank, has an essentially separate government led by President Mahmoud Abbas. It's dominated by Fatah, which is Hamas's longtime rival. So the West Bank is divided from Gaza by geography and politics and power. And now they're trying to unify. As a first step, Abbas's prime minister offered his resignation this week. So what happens next? We called a Palestinian leader, Mustafa Barghouti, who leads the Palestinian National Initiative, which is one of many Palestinian political parties. Why did the prime minister resign now?
34: Well, he resigned because there is a lot of pressure on the Palestinian Authority that there is a need for reform. As you know, we have uh, lost our democratic system during the last few years since we did not have elections since 2006. Mm-hmm. And we don't have separation of powers. I mean, all the powers, executive, legislative, and, and uh, judiciary, are in the hands of the president and a small number of people with him. And uh, that's why we think that this resignation could hopefully lead to the formation of a national unity interim government.
11: I would like to make sure that I understand what you mean when you say a national unity interim government. Do you mean a single government that would have at least some authority over both the West Bank and Gaza?
34: Absolutely, because it has to maintain the unity between West Bank and Gaza and prevent Netanyahu's plan to replace the Palestinian legitimate structures with a bunch of collaborators that work under his military occupation.
11: I will just note the way that the Israeli government has phrased this the way that Prime Minister Netanyahu has phrased it is that he would like someone to run Gaza while Israel would have uh, overall security control and the right for its military to go where they would want to go uh, in Gaza. But Netanyahu has also said he is unwilling to see a unified government of Gaza and the West Bank. What makes you believe that they would allow that?
34: It doesn't matter whether he allows it or not. What matters is what we do ourselves. And Netanyahu doesn't want unified government between West Bank and Gaza, because he wants to kill the idea of Palestinian statehood. He wants to kill the idea of two-state solution. And when he says he wants to keep security control, he means he wants to have full military occupation of Gaza and West Bank, and he wants uh, some kind of a government subservient to him.
11: Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, has said that uh, his group will not return to Gaza atop an Israeli tank. Would this effectively be returning to Gaza atop an Israeli tank?
34: Not if it's a national unity government. If it is a pure Fatah government, yes, this would be the case. But if it is a national unity government accepted by all Palestinian groups, then he would be coming back to Gaza with the will of Palestinian forces, not the will of Israelis.
11: I see what you're saying. If only his party were to get back into Gaza, that would be something done with Israeli power. But if they are welcomed in by Hamas, that would be something that is done by Palestinians. That's your point of view.
34: Palestinians are not only Hamas and Fatah. There are 14 different political forces in Palestine.
11: Including yours, sure.
34: Including ours. And we are non-Fatah, non-Hamas. We are a third democratic party. We are ranking third now in all polls and uh, we should all be included.
11: Someone listening to this may hear you saying that you would reach an accommodation with Hamas and feel that what you're saying is that you're reaching an accommodation with a terror group that wants the elimination of Israel. Would that be true?
34: No, because they are not a terror group. And if you call Hamas terrorists, what do you call the Israeli illegal settlers who are attacking us around the clock? Uh, I think these expressions don't reflect the reality. And the reality is that we need to stop violence, we need to stop war, we need to stop the aggression that is taking place on Gaza. That's also terror.
11: Let's set aside for a moment the term terrorist or terror group. You would reach an accommodation with the group that attacked Israel on October 7th of last year, killing something around 1,200 Israelis. Are you comfortable with that?
34: As much as the United States is comfortable dealing with Israel, that killed 37,000 Palestinians, including 11,000 children. What's the difference?
11: I guess our latest figure is not not to quibble. Our our latest figure is 29,000. Do you have a larger?
34: Okay. uh, Yes, but because you don't count the 7,000 people missing under the rubble, that nobody can get to the bodies of people. But let it be only 29,000. Is that acceptable? Where does that put Israel? I think if you deal with Israel, we have to deal with Hamas.
11: So when Israel says their strategic goal is to destroy Hamas, you consider that to be impossible, and Hamas must be part of the solution, is what you're saying.
34: Not only me. I think so many people are saying that, including Americans. It's impossible to destroy a movement. What Israel is destroying is the potential for peace.
11: If you get to a ceasefire and you have a national unity government of the kind that you describe, it's possible for me to imagine a situation evolving that is similar to what happens in the West Bank, in that there is a very limited Palestinian self-government, and Israeli security forces do what they deem necessary. They have security control of varying degrees in varying parts of the West Bank. Is that a sustainable solution for Gaza, at least in the short term?
34: No, it's a sustainable solution for Palestinian internal governance so that we can stand up to this occupation and end it. But no sustainable peace will be there without Israel ending its occupation of West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and allowing Palestinians to practice their self-determination and having a state of their own. To be clear,
11: for those who are curious, does your party support a two-state solution, meaning there would still be an Israel uh, 1967 borders or some such borders?
34: Yes, but that's what Israel is rejecting. Netanyahu is declaring every day that he will not allow a Palestinian state. That's the problem that the United States has to deal with. United States is the only country in the world that can stop this situation and open the road to real peace, either two-state solution, two-sovereign state solution, or one democratic state with equality for everybody, where we will be accepted as equal human beings.
11: Mr. Barghouti, thanks very much for the time. I really
34: appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
11: Mustafa Barghouti is a Palestinian politician, leader of the party called the Palestinian National Initiative. You can find more coverage and many differing views and analysis of the Israel-Hamas war at npr.org slash Middle East. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. We're following news this morning that President Biden and former President Donald Trump won the Michigan primaries, but tens of thousands of Democratic voters cast uncommitted ballots to protest Biden's stance on Gaza. And despite losing, Nikki Haley pledged to stay in the race against Trump until at least Super Tuesday. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Hunter Biden is set to testify behind closed doors today in the House impeachment probe of President Biden. It's a critical moment for Republicans as the inquiry teeters on the brink of collapse. It's 8:19.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures Talk at LizLinder.com.
32: Living in the aftermath of climate-driven disasters is incredibly difficult for most Americans. But dealing with a disaster on top of the financial strain of being in college is
24: even harder. I couldn't sleep very well. I was not doing very well in classes. And then every time it rained, I just had a freak out.
32: are the unique challenges for college students in the face of climate change on All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Listen again after four today on 90.9 WBUR.
0: A good chance of showers all day today. It'll also be windy and some patchy fog is possible this morning. Highs will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the upper 20s and there's a chance of more rain and maybe some snow showers. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy. It'll be much colder with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Take a break and play the WBR crossword puzzle every day. Today's clue, four letters, often exchanged before the rings. Play the puzzle for free at WBUR.org slash fun.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR
7: News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Nurses around the country are telling lawmakers there are not enough of them working in hospitals, and they say that is putting patients' lives at risk. Those concerns led California and Oregon to enact laws limiting the number of patients under a single nurse's care. But when other states tried to do the same, the hospital industry blocked them. Now, Kate Wells with Michigan Public Radio tells us family members of patients are joining the fight. It has been one year since Tim Lillard lost his
15: wife, Anne.
8: She'd get up with me every morning, even though she was retired, and we'd make breakfast together. I mean, we were best friends.
15: Tim is a police detective in a Detroit suburb, and he couldn't stop thinking about that month that Anne spent in the hospital after a COVID infection. Nurses there told him that they were understaffed, and he saw them having to rush constantly from one crisis to the next.
8: Alarms would go off for the medications. They'd come to the room, shut off the alarm. When they get low, run to the medication room, come back, set them down, go to the next room, shut off alarms. And that was going on all the time.
15: While she was in the hospital, Ann caught pneumonia and she had to be intubated. But then, finally, Ann seemed to be doing better. Nurses told Tim that they were getting ready to discharge her to a rehab center where she could continue recovering. And then one morning, Tim came in, as usual, and a nurse told him Anne had a bad night.
8: When I walked in, they were doing CPR, and our son walked in right after, and at 12.30, they had pronounced and stopped CPR.
15: What Tim couldn't understand was how did Ann go from about to be discharged to dying seemingly overnight? So he started investigating. He talked to nurses, a doctor, hospital administrators. And he says everybody told him the same thing. It could have been sepsis. Sepsis is when an infection in the body triggers a larger chain reaction that can cause organ failure. Some sepsis deaths, though, are preventable if staff can catch it early.
8: But when they don't have enough help... They don't get to spend that time to be able to determine the difference of is it COVID, is it the flu, or is it sepsis?
15: One study found that for every additional patient a nurse had to care for, the mortality rate from sepsis went up 12 percent, which is why one year after Ann's death, Tim went to the state capitol.
2: The House health policy will come to order, or the clerk please take attendance. Chair,
15: Tim was there to testify in favor of the Safe Patient Care Act. It would create mandatory nurse-to-patient ratios in Michigan hospitals.
8: It's My belief, had there been nurses adequately staffed, the subtle changes in her health would have been caught and she'd still be alive.
15: Thank you, Mr. Lillard, for that. Over the past year, nurses in states like Washington, Michigan, Minnesota, Maine and Pennsylvania have all pushed for this. They're telling lawmakers that hospitals have tried to save money by keeping staffing levels too low and that that has
13: created a crisis.
21: Last year, I coded someone in an ICU for 10 minutes all alone
15: because there was no one to help me. Sometimes up to I 11 no patients per nurse.
13: I have been left as the only
7: specially trained nurse to take care of eight babies on the unit, eight fragile newborns.
15: That was Jamie Brown, Rachel Hunt, and Carolyn Clemens. They're all Michigan nurses. Another nurse, Nakia Parker, says she left her full-time job in the ER because of low staffing. And she told Michigan lawmakers this is not a shortage of nurses. This is a shortage of nurses who are willing to work in these conditions.
30: If the Safe Patient Care Act is passed and we have ratios, I'm one of those nurses who would return to the bedside full-time. And so many of my coworkers that have left would join me. But to many lawmakers,
15: mandatory ratios feel like a really big risk. Michigan Republican State Representative Graham Filler asked, what happens if there just aren't enough nurses?
5: We're going to severely
1: hamper health care in the state of Michigan. I'm talking closed wards because you can't meet the ratio, inability for a hospital to treat an emergent patient. So it feels kind of to me like a gamble we're taking.
15: Michigan hospitals say that if the state starts mandating ratios, they will have to turn patients away. Tim Lillard watched this debate from his seat at the State House hearing.
8: That's a scare tactic, in my opinion, where these hospitals say we're going to have to start closing stuff down.
15: Tim does not think that a single law will magically fix everything. But he says it's gotten to a point where something has to change.
8: The only way these hospitals are going to make any changes and even start moving towards making it better is if they're forced to.
15: So Tim is making this his mission. He doesn't want other families to have to
7: have the same what-ifs. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Public and KFF Health News.
11: How much does it cost for a fast food burger? For Wendy's customers, the answer could vary. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the announcement comes as more industries experiment with fluctuating prices.
10: Surge pricing isn't new. Airlines began doing it in the 1980s, and more recently ride-sharing apps like Uber have hiked prices when demand increases. Now the fast food business is looking to dish up dynamic pricing too. Here's Wendy's president and CEO, Kirk Tanner, speaking to investors during a February earnings call.
16: Beginning as early as 2025, we will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offerings.
10: Many took those comments to mean Wendy's was about to launch surge pricing, but the company told NPR in an email that it's hoping to use dynamic pricing to drive traffic to its restaurants during the slower parts of the day, not raise prices at peak times. Rob Shumsky is a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. He says when companies change their prices as demand ebbs and flows, it can confuse and annoy customers.
11: It can reduce the trust between consumers and people who provide services. If you
5: can't depend on a price being at a certain level, you're going to hesitate to go back.
10: Shumsky says companies often announce price hikes during peak periods ahead of time, such as more expensive theme park tickets on weekends. But more recently, technology has made it easier for prices to change in real time, a trend popping up everywhere from hotels to movie theaters. If price is the same throughout the entire day,
27: they are actually losing revenue during those peak period times.
10: But Chumsky says surge pricing can actually benefit consumers. Prices may be higher during busy periods, but that means they could come down during off peak times and customers might actually see a discount. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Uh
11: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, why Tyler Perry stopped expanding his Atlanta studio after watching a demonstration of OpenAI's new text-to-video model, Sora. It's 8.29.
35: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. Laurenholleran.com.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden and former President Donald Trump each won by large margins in Michigan's presidential primary elections. But as member station WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter reports, the results are also flashing some warning signs for both candidates.
4: Biden's victory was diluted by a historically large number of voters selecting uncommitted on their ballots as a protest against the president's support for Israel's war in Gaza. That includes some younger voters and members of Michigan's significant Arab and Muslim population, a key voting block in a state Biden needs to win in a likely rematch against Trump. The former president finished far ahead of his closest rival, Nikki Haley, yet hundreds of thousands of voters cast a ballot for Haley, with no guarantee they'll return to Trump for the November general election. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit.
26: Both Biden and Trump are set to visit the southern border in Texas tomorrow. A record number of migrants are crossing into the U.S. in what's proving to be a top campaign issue. House Speaker Mike Johnson is insisting that addressing the border be a priority as Congress seeks to avert a partial government shutdown looming Friday and approve emergency funding for Ukraine and Israel. The House reconvenes today with a Republican majority set to get even slimmer. Tom Suozzi of New York is due to be sworn in, boosting Democrats' seats to 213. That's six fewer than Republicans. It's NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today on Beacon Hill, the House is set to take up a proposal that could help the state compete for federal grant dollars. Governor Healy wants to use interest on the state's Rainy Day Fund to help compete for the money. She thinks making the money available for grant matching will attract federal dollars. Cases of neurovirus are on the rise in the Northeast. That's a stomach bug that can cause vomiting and diarrhea and last two to three days. Dr. Barbara Spivak is the president of the Massachusetts Medical Society. She says most people can recover on their own.
2: Try to take sips of fluid, hydrated, and if you find that you're really getting dehydrated, which can be you're getting dizzy when you stand up or you are not producing any urine, then you may have to go to an emergency room.
0: While people are sick, they should wash their hands frequently and avoid cooking for others. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is calling for a bipartisan agreement to avoid a partial shutdown of the federal government at the end of the week. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston, Trahan said Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson needs to stand up to extreme members of his own party.
30: We're starting to hear from the most extreme members again uh, that they want to
0: cut programs like WIC and SNAP that literally help millions of hardworking families put food on the table for their kids. Earlier this month, the Senate reached a funding deal, but House Republicans refused to hold a vote on the measure. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home
35: insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a
0: better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics extended their winning streak to nine games last night at home. They beat Philadelphia 117-99. to The Seas are now tied with the Orlando Magic as the team with the longest winning streak this season. Next up, the Celtics host the Dallas Mavericks on Friday. Meanwhile, the Bruins play the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow night in Boston. This morning is off to a damp and warm start with highs in the upper 50s today, but the mild weather ends tonight. As WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce explains, a wind advisory will go into effect at 1 p.m. and it'll stay in place overnight.
30: The wind will be the big story today. A lot of gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour resulting in pockets of damage through this afternoon and tonight. The wind first out of the south and then shifting around to the northwest. Rain will also continue periodically today. May end is a little bit of wet snow mixing in after midnight tonight, just a coating in a few spots and a much colder day tomorrow.
0: Blustery with wind chill values only in the teens and 20s. Boston-based energy company Eversource says its crews are ready to respond to any power outages caused by today's high winds. It's 55 degrees in Boston. You're at WBOR.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Hunter Biden once stood outside the U.S. Capitol and vowed he would only testify about his business dealings publicly, never behind closed doors. So much for that. In a House hearing
11: room today, House Republicans are expected to hear privately as they wanted from one of their
7: long-standing political targets. Uh, Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is with us now to tell us more about what is going on today. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. All right. So congressional Republicans have been, you know, so focused on Hunter Biden for so long. Now they get to talk to him. What do they want to ask?
20: You're right that House Republicans have made Hunter in many ways the main character in their impeachment inquiry against his father. They've devoted a ton of time, a ton of effort trying to dig into Hunter's business dealings, particularly the work that he's done overseas. They will undoubtedly ask him about a deal he made with the Chinese energy company, about his work with a Ukrainian energy company. Other business deals will no doubt come up. And all of this, Republicans are going to try to funnel into their working theory of the case here, that President Biden somehow played an active role in or somehow benefited from uh, the business dealings of his family members, Hunter, of course, chief among them. At this point, though, it has to be said, months in, Republicans have not turned up any concrete evidence of wrongdoing on the president's part. So for Republicans, there is a lot riding on this deposition today.
7: Is there a sense of how Hunter Biden will answer their questions?
20: Well, Hunter's talked publicly about a lot of his business dealings, certainly about his struggles with addiction. Uh, So a lot of this is ground that's been covered to one degree or another. But a source familiar with the matter tells me that Hunter will tell lawmakers that his father was not involved in his business affairs. That echoes what James Biden, the president's brother, uh, told Congress last week in his own deposition. I'm told Hunter also is expected to acknowledge that he made mistakes, that he's had his own struggles with addiction, stuff that has been well-documented. He's also expected to push back against the whole impeachment effort, to tell lawmakers that, in his view, it's based on lies. I expect that he'll point to the recent criminal charges against Alexander Smirnoff. He's the former FBI informant who allegedly fabricated claims of a Biden bribery scheme, a scheme that has been central, of course, to the Republicans impeachment effort here.
7: Remember, we said that Hunter Biden had said publicly he was never going to testify privately. He would only testify Mm -hmm. in public in an open session. Do you have a sense of why he agreed to testify privately?
20: His team was worried about selective leaks. That was part of the fight over this whole deposition. It's worth noting that republicans were threatening to hold him in contempt of congress the two sides ended up working out an agreement for today's deposition the deposition will not be videotaped i am told the transcript will be released as quickly as possible that was another part of this agreement and those two points seem to address hunter biden's concerns you mentioned alexander
7: smirnoff that's the informant of course who's accused of lying about the biden's to the fbi where is he now
20: so he's in California. He's been ordered to remain in jail there pending trial. He's pleaded not guilty to the charges. But there are still questions swirling about his contacts with Russian intelligence. Prosecutors say that those contacts are extensive. They say they aren't benign. Uh, and they raise questions of whether some of the information that Smirnov was giving the FBI uh, could have been false info fed by the Russians. The Smirnov case certainly undercuts one of the main allegations that Republicans have made in their impeachment bid. But it has not killed that impeachment bid. So where does this proceeding go from here? That's a good question. Democrats say it should be all over and done with. But House Republicans leading this probe say that their investigation doesn't rest solely on the Smirnoff claims. They say they have other leads that they are pursuing. And it's also worth noting that they are under a lot of pressure from their base to keep this going.
7: That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thank you. Thank you. If you haven't looked at your insurance bill lately, just don't. Home
11: and auto insurance premiums have been climbing at double-digit rates throughout this country, even as overall inflation has been coming down. NPR's Scott Horsley reports.
14: Ezra Croft has never filed an insurance claim, and his house in Raleigh, North Carolina, isn't close to a stormy coastline or a fire-prone forest. So Croft was surprised when his annual homeowner's insurance premium shot up to $1,600, $700 more than he was paying just a couple of years ago. I'm a middle-income guy. I don't make a ton of extra money. At this point, I'm teetering on the point of inaffordability. North Carolina's insurance commissioner has gotten tens of thousands of similar complaints. Croft went to a hearing last month where there were lots of unhappy insurance customers.
5: Every single person there was
23: furious and scared and confused.
14: Similar pain is being felt all over the country. As insurance companies tried to raise homeowners' premiums by more than 11 percent last year, auto insurance premiums are climbing even faster, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. Paul Morrow in Herndon, Virginia, says the cost of his family's auto insurance just jumped by $600 a year.
5: Here's the kicker. My wife and I both work from home, so we, we have no commute to speak of. It just feels like everything is rising at a scary rate. Insurance
14: companies insist they're just playing catch-up after two years of big losses. Sean Kevlin, who heads the Insurance Information Institute, says for every dollar companies collected last year in home and auto premiums, they paid out ten.
22: Nobody wants to have that higher price bill, but insurance does need to price insurance according to the risk level that's out there.
14: Inflation is partly to blame for those big payouts. Fixing or replacing damaged homes and cars has gotten more expensive, but insurers are also having to contend with a mounting toll of natural disasters, and not just in the usual places like Florida and California. S&P's Tim Zawacki says there were nearly 2 dozen billion dollar storms last year, spreading lightning, hail, and damaging winds through many parts of the country. While a lot of these storms don't make national headlines, They do tend to be very costly at the local level, and the sort of breadth of where these storms are occurring is something that I think the industry is quite concerned about. As a result, insurance premiums are likely to keep climbing this year, even as overall inflation cools. Doug Heller, who tracks insurance for the Consumer Federation of America, says while state regulators have some power to limit those price hikes, insurance companies have a lot of leverage and tend to get their way. The insurance companies have become
5: really aggressive kind of in their bullying. You've heard a lot about companies that are threatening to pull out of the market if they don't get what they want. Generally speaking, that bullying has worked.
14: Heller says customers can sometimes save money by shopping around. Alicia Patori switched insurers after the cost of her family's auto policy jumped more than $1,000.
12: It was Liberty Mutual. (laughs) We've since switched to State Farm since the renewal went up so much.
14: Patori, who lives in Nashville, says while she managed to shave a few hundred dollars off the bill, she's still paying a lot more than she was two years ago.
12: I shopped a lot, and no matter what, it was going to be a price increase. What can you do? You know, you need insurance. You can't have a vehicle or a house without them, so you have to pay for it, and you figure out where you can cut other things to make sure that you can drive around.
14: Auto insurance is required in most states, and so is homeowners coverage if you have a mortgage. Still, as the cost of insurance goes up, more people are scaling back their coverage, or even going without. The Consumer Federation's Heller warns that's dangerous. We are very concerned that the escalating premiums are going to lead to escalating rates of uninsured drivers and homeowners, which makes us all quite vulnerable. Insurance is the way that we deal with the risky world. And while the price of repairs and replacement may moderate over time, the risk of severe weather only seems to be getting worse. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes here on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report continues its series about so-called news deserts. Today we go to North Carolina where some experts say a news desert may have played a role in a congressional election so controversial there was a do-over. Rainy and windy today with patchy fog possible this morning. Temperatures will rise to the upper 50s. Tonight, upper 20s with a chance of more rain and a few snow showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy. It'll be much colder with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 54 degrees in Boston.
29: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Center for the Humanities. Presenting the acclaimed writer, David Gran. February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgrandbu.eventbrite.com. Breeze Airways
0: is coming to Manchester Boston Regional Airport. The airline plans to offer flights to South Carolina and Florida. Breeze also operates out of airports in Maine, Vermont, and Rhode Island. The news comes after Spirit Airlines said it would stop its operations in Manchester in May. A popular shopping mall in Maine is getting redeveloped. One of the outlet malls in Kittery, Maine, is slated for demolition. Developers say they plan to put a hotel and apartment building in its place. They say some of the apartment units will be designated as affordable. The Worcester Bravehearts plan to offer an all-you-can-eat meal ticket this season. The $20 ticket will get you -you all-you-can-eat concessions from the stadium. The team says the ticket includes unlimited hot dogs, burgers, chicken nuggets, and some vegetarian options. Some items will not be included with the ticket. It's 844.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024 bluecrossma.com slash go. And Global Arts Live's Flamenco Festival in Boston, March 2nd through 13th. Experience the passion, power, and beauty. Tickets at globalartslive.org.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Innsky. And I'm Michelle Martin. A short video is making the rounds of Hollywood. There's nothing scary about the images, no zombies or creepy space creatures. No, we're talking cute animals, beautiful scenery and paper airplanes flying through a jungle. But many in the entertainment world still find it terrifying. Why? Two words, artificial intelligence. Here to talk more about this is Alex Wapron. He is a media and business writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm hearing this has become a must watch among film industry types, true?
19: Absolutely, everyone in Hollywood is watching uh, the Sora AI video generating uh, software very closely.
7: Now, Tyler Perry says he was so astounded by what he saw that he's hit the brakes on an $800 million studio expansion in Atlanta. He told The Hollywood Reporter, your publication, the technology is mind-blowing, and he warned that without regulations, the industry may not survive. Now, that is pretty strong. That's a pretty strong statement. So, you know, but it's not like AI is exactly new. So why so much concern now?
19: You know, I think the issue is that while Hollywood has actually been using AI for some time, mostly in the special effects and visual effects areas the new technology we're seeing like sora the text to video software the uh the photo generation software it's such a big leap from what was used previously that i think a lot of big studios and also independent producers like perry are realizing just how fast it's going to come for some of the traditional hollywood jobs the people they employ Uh, perry himself said that in an upcoming film he used AI to kind of age himself instead of sitting in the makeup chair for hours. So it's already being used today, and I think uh, it's becoming clear just how impactful it's going to be.
7: Are other entertainment companies considering any changes in response to this latest version of AI? Are they saying things like similar to what Perry's saying?
19: No one is saying anything publicly, but we do know that they are experimenting with it privately. Uh, And again, because it's already used in visual effects, you know, the, the software is already kind of in the hands of any of the, the uh, executives and employees in the studio lot. But I do know, and, you know, my colleagues and I, when we speak to executives in Hollywood and producers, they're all playing around with this technology and figuring out how they can use it, even though I think they know that it's going to mean job losses over time.
7: Does OpenAI have an answer for critics or observers who see this tech as an existential threat to the entertainment industry. And I have to say, to cities like Los Angeles that depend on it, or perhaps in Atlanta, like the people that Tyler Perry employs?
19: You know, uh, companies like OpenAI and Google, which has its own Gemini uh, AI system, you know, they really focus on the positives, and there are positives, you know, this could allow independent producers or, you know, creators like on YouTube to, you know, create movies or TV shows or content that they would never be able to do otherwise. So that's the double-edged sword here. It's going to cause issues for people with certain jobs at legacy studios, and it will provide opportunities for, for independent creators who just wouldn't have the budget or the means to create certain types of content before. And I think that's where a lot of the AI companies are focusing their efforts on.
7: So are they basically kind of, I'm forgiving just ignoring the, the job loss aspect and more sort of focusing on the opportunity?
19: Yeah, I mean, if you've listened to interviews with Sam Altman, the the founder of OpenAI, he certainly is aware of the impact to jobs, and he will say that when asked about it. But I think they are trying to focus on the positive and ways that the technology can help people and improve their lives. Uh, And in the case of studios, how they can save some money.
7: That's Alex Wafron. He writes about media and business for The Hollywood Reporter. Alex, thank you. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin, and I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBR, it's the BBC News Hour with new figures from the EU that show there's been a sharp rise in the number of people seeking asylum in Europe. Also, Alexei Navalny's widow says his body was abused after he was murdered by Russian authorities. It's eight forty-nine. You know what I love about Posting Morning Edition? I get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters, or interview people living through their
12: most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you, our listeners, understand the world we live in, but it also costs money. So donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org
0: cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Hunter Biden is expected to testify today as part of an impeachment probe into his father, President Biden. Wildfires are forcing evacuations in parts of Texas and Oklahoma. And lawyers for former FTC cryptocurrency founder Sam Bankman-Fried are calling for a shorter prison sentence after prosecutors rec- recommended he spend 100 years behind bars for defrauding investors. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBR and on the WBR app.
35: WBUR supporters include Explo. Where curiosity fuels discovery, Explow is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit XBLOW.org summer.
0: Rain, gusty winds and upper 50s today. Temperatures plummet to the upper 20s tonight. It'll be windy and we may see more rain and a few more snow showers. Tomorrow still windy, but mostly sunny and only in the mid-30s. It's 54 degrees in Boston.
1: It's like the promised flying cars that never seem to come. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Twilio
28: Segment. Segment brings customer data together for real-time insights so companies know each individual like they are their only customer. Learn more at Segment.com. And by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information including application at Progressive.com
1: careers. I'm David Brancaccio, the electric car from Apple. 10 years of investment, yet, there are multiple published reports now that Apple has given up. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. Apple's ambitions to create its own autonomous
5: electric
19: vehicle, known internally as Project Titan, have been secretive to a degree. Rumors have swirled around Silicon Valley since the project began in 2014. The company has also been testing its autonomous driving technology on public roads, according to data from the California Department of Motor Vehicles. But the effort appears to be ending, and at least some of the employees working on the project reportedly will shift to developing artificial intelligence instead. In a call with analysts earlier this month, CEO Tim Cook promised more AI related developments later this year. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace.
1: S&P futures are down three-tenths percent now. NASDAQ futures down four-tenths percent. Stock in UnitedHealth fell two and a quarter percent yesterday, and it's down another seven percent in pre-market trading at the moment. This after the Wall Street Journal reported the Justice Department has opened an antitrust investigation with a possible focus on UnitedHealth's Optum Unit, which owns doctor practices.
28: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indiana University's Kelley School of Business, developing tomorrow's business leaders through the nationally ranked Kelley Direct Online MBA. Learn more about the Kelley Direct Online MBA's 25-year legacy at iu.edu onlinemba online MBA. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a the firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7
1: live help. I've been traveling to what are called news deserts in Super Tuesday states to hear about the business models that are failing or informing voters as they make their choices on Tuesday. Today, North Carolina, where sparse local news coverage may have played parts in a congressional election so questionable there was a do-over.
33: It not only happened in my own state, it happened in the congressional district, the North Carolina 9th congressional district that I lived in at that point.
1: That is media scholar Penny Mews Abernathy, one of the foremost experts on declining local news coverage in America. She's now with the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. It's the fall of 2018. A Baptist minister had seemed to win a seat in Congress by about 900 votes.
33: What later became apparent is that all of the difference could be attributed to absentee ballots that had been cast in at least one of the counties some voters even claim that strangers
2: came to their door offering to collect their ballots for them and even fill them out
33: that's
1: wcnc tv in charlotte the case was ugly the candidate's own son himself a u.s attorney testified that he had warned his father about hiring a political operative who offered sketchy services
8: i told him that
4: collecting ballots was a felony
1: In a very rare occurrence in a race for US Congress, officials ordered a new election, a blockbuster story. Yet, Abernathy noticed coverage was only minimal. You'd think evidence of election fraud would be the talk of the district and drive voters in the special election to the polls to make sure their vote got counted. Instead, turnout was only so-so, down by a third from the first election. Abernathy draws a line from voter apathy to the desertification of local news.
33: What we've seen over the last 20 years as the quality and quantity of our local news has dropped precipitously, so has participation in local elections.
1: And there's another feature about this sorry tale that disturbs people worried about the decline of local news. It's how the election shenanigans first came to light. It was not a local Woodward or Bernstein-style reporter on the beat,
33: No, it absolutely wasn't. The real uncovering of this came from political scientists who were looking and noticing immediately the anomaly occurring with election returns in one specific county.
1: The absentee ballots were weird in Bladen County. It has a paper, but given what's happening with the Internet and ad revenue, it doesn't have the reporting staff papers used to have when Abernathy started out in the business nearby.
33: They have to be very selective about the stories they cover. You just don't have the bandwidth to do it.
1: The political operative in the absentee ballot scandal was charged but died before a trial. The original candidate, Mark Harris, was never charged with anything and, as it happens, is running for Congress in the Republican primary next week. And who needs local papers if we have phones full of headlines?
33: What travels on your cell phone? Way more than 95 percent of that is uh, national news so you know we used to say all politics is local but in the absence of local news all politics and all news becomes national
1: the local news initiative at medill tracks news deserts as well as solutions including social entrepreneurs who work to fill in gaps in local coverage Based in Durham, a nonprofit called Carolina Public Press doesn't see itself as a replacement for local newspapers, but with a roster of freelancers and two staff reporters, it has been able to do investigative work that moves the needle. Lisa Lopez is interim executive director.
15: Either with our digital platform and or partnerships with other news organizations like radio, and we find out what topics they would like to see us cover, as well as how they would like to receive the news.
1: Such as texting news stories to readers in rural counties with spotty internet. And editor-in-chief Frank Taylor says his team has reported on weaknesses in state law, leading to low rates of prosecution for sexual assault. And as a
6: result of our reporting, legislation passed passed unanimously in the legislature, which if you know know the North Carolina legislature, it can be a toxically partisan place.
1: Innovations to irrigate and replant news deserts are happening around the country. After the Oxford Press in Ohio folded for good a month ago, students at nearby Miami University jumped in, adding a local news section to the student newspaper. Now, in Maine, many for-profit newspapers were rolled up last year into a single nonprofit umbrella organization. But also popping up are news-like publications filled with algorithm-generated content and items that look like news but are really partisan talking points. Tomorrow here, we cross the border to Virginia to visit a news desert surprisingly close to Washington, D.C. All of our Democracy in the Desert stories become streamable from Marketplace.org. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: Join Radio Boston host Tisiana Deering on Monday at City Space for a conversation with Maria Neljosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. One last day of temperatures in the 50s today before they plummet tonight and we return to blustery winter weather tomorrow. Today, rain, high winds, and upper 50s. Tonight, a chance of more rain possibly mixed with a little snow. It'll be in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, Tomorrow only in the mid 30s and windy, but we'll get some sun with mostly clear skies. It's 55 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the exhibition Auschwitz. Not long ago, not far
35: away, with a unique collection of over 700 artifacts, a once-in-a-lifetime exhibit opened March 15th in Boston.
8: You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle.
17: One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador.
8: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at wbur.org fun.
17: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
8: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at wbur.org fun.